We are uh, in the second of three weeks talking about the God of history. We talked uh, last time about the stages, this is kind of a metaphor that I'd like you to think about. It's a useful metaphor when it comes to looking at God's working in the world. We talked about how God, the story of God in history is important to me because it's easy to think of the Bible as some set apart type book. It didn't really happen in history. It's sort of like you pick up a, a book of fairy tales and it's like once upon a time, but the Bible's not a fairy tale. It's not like that. It's happening in real history. God's using real people, some of them willingly, some of them unwillingly. Economic forces, political forces, there are all kinds of interesting things happening that God is using. Also, God is not just using the Jews and the Christians. It's not just a storybook of our faith. It's also a story about what God's trying to do with everybody. We talked about God is working with all of humanity, he's just working through some segments of humanity. So we talked about the major civilizations, and we're covering a lot of ground, I realize, and this we're gonna cover about 1800 years of history, but we're gonna talk about a different era. And we talked about the the civilizations of humanity, we talked about the gods, and we called that, or I called that, the age of immaturity. And the metaphor I wanted you to think about is when you consider what God is trying to do, He's going to go from the fall of humanity. Think about those early chapters in Genesis. And his goal, the purpose in history, actually history has purpose because God has a purpose in history. He's basically going to redeem humanity. In other words, he's going to restore it. And whatever your eschatology is, however you see the end times, whether he's literally going to make a new heavens, a new earth, whether it's going to be a spiritual plane, kind of irrelevant to my point. My point is that he is going to restore creation to goodness. What he said was good in the beginning will be good in the end. So he introduces purpose into history. Humanity has really dropped to kind of a toddler level. That's the way I described it. Think terrible twos. And so God is going to take this toddler, and you don't just sit him down and say, all right, and I did say this once. This is one of the low points of my parenting career. This is a true story. I remember when my middle son was sitting in the back seat and he was saying something and I was really frustrated with him and I just I said, this is really true. I turned around and I said, would you act like a grown-up? <laughs> and, and, and even as I said it, I thought, boy, that was really stupid. My middle son is the quiet thinker and so he just looked back at me and go, I know exactly what you're thinking and you are wise enough not to say it, you know? <laughs> Smart kid. But, you know, so God doesn't sit down the two-year-old and say, hey, I want you to start acting like a grown-up. I've got this plan, and I want you to start behaving the way I want you to behave. He's got to grow humanity up. He has to raise humanity. I think that's a useful way to think of it. And so you look at humanity's gods. You look at what God was doing with people. In that toddler phase, what he did was he chose a specific group of people, and their mission was to be like a tutor, if you will, to the rest of the world to show them God, to show them God's holiness. And so he began to work politically, spiritually, and intellectually through the Jews, through the children of Abraham, to help to educate the world. It's sort of like putting a a really advanced kid in a group of other kids. For example, if you put a kid 
who can read and with a group of kids that can't, the next thing you know, they start to acquire skills. In other words, they interact and it, wor and it wears off. That's why as a parent, you kind of like your kids around well-behaved kids versus not well-behaved kids. Now, the parent of that well-behaved kids is thinking just the opposite, you know? Like, I don't want my kids around yours, Terry. But it does, it kind of rubs off. That's what God was doing. And his methods, one of the reasons you look at the Old Testament and you say, boy, this sure looks like a bunch of rules. It looks like God's interacting in history in ways that he doesn't do in the New Testament. And my point to you is, is his methods mirrored what he was dealing with. In other words, you have a lot of rules for toddlers. You don't have so many rules for your 25-year-old child, right? It's a different kind of relationship. So that's where we were in our last lesson. And so we're going to move on from the age of immaturity to the age, what I call the age of reason. And this time period is a little arbitrarily set, but I set it at 356 BC because that's when Alexander the Great was born. And we'll go all the way up to about 1453. 1453 is when the last vestige of the Roman Empire falls to the Ottoman Turks and kind of ushers in what we're going to call the very modern age, the age of enlightenment. And we're going to talk about that next time. We're going to talk about how God's effectively working in the world today. But what I would like to talk about in this lesson is let's start about the fourth century BC. We left off with the Persians controlling most of the world. But along in Greece, something interesting is happening. And the, uh, yes, I'm sorry, go ahead. Before you got started, I was just going to say we had a question about dates, and I thought now was a good time to ask it. That's great. Thank you. So, sorry for interrupting. Um, how were the dates at the beginning of the cultures that you looked at last week, and I presume this also applies for this week, how are those dates determined? Yes, let me go back just a tad here. We'll go back to this. I told you, just as a matter of interest, actually, last time, when the calendars for some of these civilizations started, uh, the Mayan calendar, you know, goes back to 36-something B.C., and the, the Jewish calendar starts, you know, at, at a specific date. The Jewish calendar started that way because they looked at the Old Testament and all the different generations and added them up. A very inaccurate process, by the way, but they added them up and sort of came to a consensus then, if you just go backwards through the generations, Adam must have been created uh, at this specific time. Uh, the Mayan calendar is based very much on, they were really pretty advanced in terms of astronomy for their age. Uh, their calendar shows some kind of correspondence, a beginning and an ending, that tends to move with astronomical movements. Uh, who else did I tell you? The Egyptians. I have no idea how the Egyptians came out. I just don't happen to know where they got the beginning dates. So that's a good question, but they got them in a variety of ways. But obviously, uh, it, it comes more from tradition and lore than it does from any particular scientific type of reason. So that's a good question. And by the way, I've normalized all the dates to our calendar obviously, because all these civilizations, this is what makes it really complicated, by the way, all the civilizations we're looking at use different calendars. Everybody dated their calendars from what was important to them. And so you would, in one part of the world, the Jews would have their date, and you'd move over, and the Persians would have a totally different date. 
the same cultures would start their calendars over. In fact, it's really common to date things, and you'll see that in the Old Testament, particularly with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They'll say, in the fifth year of the reign of Artaxerxes I. Artaxerxes says, hey, I'm so important, the calendar starts when I reign. I mean, that's, that was really common. So it's not a trivial thing to jive all these calendars together. So, but we've normalized all this. You'll see that, by the way, with the Muslims today. Muslims start their calendar in 622 AD, and that's the uh, movement of Muhammad to Medina when he fled to Medina. That's when the Muslim calendar starts, and that's the zero date. So the different civilizations use different calendars, and that gets really tricky. And so don't ever put too much stock in any dates that get quoted. The Greeks come on the scene in a really interesting way. And this story starts with all the civilizations in the age of immaturity, and God's working with a lot of people, influencing them through, remember, trade and economics and uh, the transfer of ideas. The world's going to shrink a little here, and it's going to focus in right around the Mediterranean because the reason what God is going to do with the Jews is going to now focus into something that happens in Judea and then it's gonna explode back out. It's like all of history is gonna collapse in this lesson to one piece of geography, and then it's gonna explode back out to the world. Well, the Greeks come along and in about the fourth century BC, so think about 400. Socrates is on your left. He died in 399. The guy in the middle is Plato. He's uh, one of Socrates' uh, students, and then the guy on the right is Aristotle. He's one of Plato's students. And they're all living in the 300s BC. And then Alexander the Great, the, a really great conqueror in a very short period of time, was tutored by Aristotle. But the Greeks uh, really come up with an explosion of ideas. I mean, not only do you have the literature, but you also have philosophy and science. Aristotle set the foundation for science for a long time. Mathematics, think Euclid. Think uh, Pythagoras, think, you know, all these ideas are bubbling up. And there's this explosion of intellectual energy around Greece. You have Pericles, who lived uh, in this same time period and essentially invented democracy. I mean, he really brought democracy to Athens. And that's an idea that has heavily influenced the world. Uh, not that we are a democracy, we're a republic, but think that idea of not a rule of the aristocracy is something that influenced all the age of revolutions in the 1700s. So those ideas were powerful and they were very enduring. So the Greeks, uh, and by this time, by the way, Nehemiah around this time is building the wall of Jerusalem back. Remember, Jerusalem got destroyed by the Babylonians, 445 BC, Nehemiah's over there building the wall. But in Greece, there's this explosion of knowledge, an explosion of culture. Um, the Greek ideas are going to influence the entire Western civilization, but they're going to provide two things. One, Alexander the Great, when he comes along in a very short period of time, conquers a huge part of the world. And this is a map, and the names on there are some of his generals, and when he died, this is how the empire was divided. But he conquers a huge amount of territory. But what's more important, because empires come and empires go, what he really did was he brought a very ubiquitous culture, meaning everywhere he went, he not only took Greek rule, he took the Greek language, and he took the Greek poets, he took Homer and the Iliad, he took Greek culture and values, 
In other words, he influenced all the world with a cultural norm. Your New Testament was written in Greek because it was the language of the time. It was a language that fundamentally everybody was expected to know something about. It's a little bit like English in the world today, a little bit, maybe a little different then, but today a lot more people speak English around the world than speak other languages here. In other words, because of the influence of America, English is very prevalent. Exactly the same thing happened here. So you get a lot of cultural ideas, you get a lot of intellectual ideas, and you get uh, this common language. So one of the huge things that he did was this unified language and culture, a way for people to communicate with each other. Greek happens to be a very nuanced language, meaning that it's a, it's a language in which you can say things with great precision, unlike Hebrew. Hebrew is a very simple and much more ancient kind of language, very hard to express really nuanced ideas. Greek, a more modern language, was much easier to express the, the nuanced ideas. It's one of the reasons you see all that philosophy coming out, is it's able to be expressed in uh, very accurate ways. So Alexander the Great, 356, dies when he's 33 years old, and he's conquered this much of the world. So you begin to see humanity, and the Greeks become, to a certain extent, humanity's tutors. And so you begin to see humanity growing up a little bit. The intellectual level is, is really different. Not that the ancient civilizations didn't have smart people. People don't get smarter through time, but they do progress through time. So Alexander the Great, significant turning point because he took that knowledge and he was able to dissipate it. Politically, they didn't do anything really hugely great. Politically, it was up to the Romans to bring more of a political stability. Romans borrowed heavily from Greek culture. Think of Romans as kind of your uncultured uh, relatives from the backwoods of Kentucky. That'd be my story. And you know, they were really good at certain things, but not the opera, right? Okay, so the Greeks provided the culture and a lot of ideas. The Romans came with the practical know-how. Romans were the ones who really did war well. They were very good. They conquered huge area uh, pieces of the world built on uh, what the Greeks had done. They built roads. They were really good at governing. I mean, you and I wouldn't like being governed by them, but they were very efficient at it. Uh, they built a lot of buildings. They were into infrastructure. Uh, they had more maps projects than you can imagine, right? So the Romans came in on top of this ubiquitous culture and language and they brought the organization. So along about the time of Jesus Christ, right about the center of history, you find that Israel's gone through some very difficult times, but there's like this huge breather. There's a free flow of ideas, because the other thing an empire does is it breaks down barriers. Breaks down barriers to trade, and you're gonna see when the Roman Empire falls what happens when those barriers go back up but it broke down barriers to trade, broke down barriers to ideas. That's an unusual idea for us with the internet. But think about the idea of how China and, and Korea censor the internet. They've put up an electronic wall there and there's not free flow of information. We're used to very free flow of information. That's what happened in Alexander the Great's empire. And then in the Roman Empire, because of the roads and other services, other civic services, you had very free travel 
of people. The Apostle Paul could not have done what he did and travel around and start these churches in really almost any era before this time period. So the Greeks and the Romans together in this time period bring a great deal of stability and they prepare things for what God wants to do. Israel, on the other hand, has done its job to a certain extent, and that is it's prepared the world with certain key ideas about God. And you're gonna, you'll see some of those ideas show up in Greek and Roman literature, by the way, but they've prepared the world with certain ideas. The Greeks gave a common language and the Romans gave stability. In fact, at the time of Christ, the emperor is a guy named Augustus, you know that, he's Julius Caesar's nephew, rules from about 27 BC, until uh, I think 14 AD. Anyway, he's right there at Jesus' time, and he presides over what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman Empire was at, at its peak at that time, it was very powerful, but there was peace in the Roman Empire. In other words, there's nobody attacking these lands. There are people attacking on the fringes out there, but the Romans are expanding their territory. There's no wars being fought in Italy or in Greece, or in Turkey, or anywhere around the Mediterranean. They've enforced a peaceful coexistence. So there's like a huge breather. It's like this pause right before something significant happens. And historically, that's exactly what God has architected. So the Greeks don't think they're doing God a favor. Uh, Alexander the Great didn't think that. The Romans certainly didn't think they were doing God a favor. But what happens here is God uses this confluence of ideas and political stability to bring about what he's planned so long ago, and that is Jesus Christ comes into the world. Well, Jesus, uh, at this time, the rest of the world, by the way, it shrinks out of our view, and it'll come back into view. Over in India, the first great empire in India is taking hold, about 321 B.C., the Mauryan Empire. Over in China, from about 200 BC up through the time of Christ and following is the Han Dynasty, one of the great dynasties of China. So those civilizations are developing, but it's like all of history focuses in here. And you don't see the robust development of ideas there. Everything comes together around the Mediterranean. And this is the era that Jesus comes into. And Jesus represents the culmination of certain ideas. I mean, the very fact, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Jesus doesn't have to be a Jew. He is a Jew because God set it up to influence the world through the Jews. Jesus doesn't have to come and die on a cross per se. Jesus has to accomplish redemption, but why do it in that way? It's because God has prepared the world with those ideas. The world understands through the Jews the idea of propitiation the idea of a payment, a sacrifice to avert what you owe on a contract. He's also, they've also got the idea of redemption. I don't know if you remember this from the Passover story, but from that time on, remember the plague of the firstborn? The Jews institute this idea for 1,400 years that you have to redeem the firstborn. Firstborn of every animal belongs to God and it was sacrificed to God. And then the firstborn in your family, you didn't sacrifice your kids. I thought about it, but you didn't sacrifice your kids. But you had to make a sacrifice in lieu of your firstborn child. And so you get this idea of redemption. The ancient world has slavery. The idea of buying something back from an enslaved condition is an idea that they understand very well. 
the idea of the Exodus motif. I think I talked about this last time. You've got the Jews in Egypt. I mean, why did the Jews have to go to Egypt and become enslaved? I mean, really, history doesn't have to go that way. God's big enough to say, you know what, Jews, you're going to live a wonderful life forever. You're never going to be enslaved anywhere. But no, that's not. Even back in Abraham's time, 600 years before Moses, he says, they're going to go and they're going to be slaves in a land that's not their own. And then he sends Moses, brings them out, and you get this whole deliverance idea, the idea of a deliverer moving from bondage into freedom. That's Jesus' ministry. Jesus literally comes and acts out the exodus. He literally comes in from the desert, crosses the Jordan just like they did, comes in and says, the kingdom of God is here. I'm going to take you from bondage to freedom. I mean, it is literally the exodus played out. Why? Because they understand it. And now that humanity's grown up a little bit, caught in what I call the adolescent phase, kind of the teen years, you can actually talk about that to them. Does that make sense? So what you have here is God bringing together economic, political, cultural ideas, and then the Jews have done their part to educate the world. And here comes Jesus, and he acts out a play that everybody understands what is happening. If you've ever been to the, any museum of modern art, I remember the last time that our family went there, we're kind of going around and we're looking at certain modern art. And I'm standing there, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, this will just tell you that, Artistically, I'm a real heathen. But I remember standing in front of some of these and I go, my kids did better work than that. You know, I mean, it's just like, this, this is art? What does it mean for this to be art? And so I've got this vague sense of one of two things happening. Either they're putting over a hoax on us and they take themselves way too seriously, or this is going way over my head, right? Well, this is kind of the way Jesus comes into the world. If you don't understand the language of art, that just doesn't look like a very good picture and it doesn't speak anything to me. The whole world understood the language and the ideas of what Jesus is doing, but, and it was architected that way for that to happen. So Jesus comes, he's the culmination of the law, and you notice things immediately change. Think Sermon on the Mount for just, this is just one example. But Jesus comes and he acts like he's not talking to a toddler anymore. He doesn't say the law was bad. He just said, I came to complete or fulfill the law. In other words, let me translate it into my metaphor. It's time for you to not have a bedtime anymore. It's time for you not to have a curfew. It's time for us to talk about what we've always wanted to talk about. It's time to shape your heart instead of just your behavior. With a toddler, all you ever hope is to control the little heathen's behavior, you know, so they can live to be six or seven years old. With a teenager, that is a very bad strategy because you know what happens, they go to college and they immediately revert to heathenism. Instead, what you want to do with teenagers is you want to shape their hearts, their ideas, their thinking. Jesus talks to humanity like he's talking to someone who is reasonable, a, the age of reason. And so, for example, Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I'm saying to you, and he's actually not disputing the law, he's just taking it further, isn't he? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say that lust 
in your heart is that you've heard it said this, and I say, don't be angry. You've heard it said, do this, and I say, do this. And, and everything he's doing, he's starting to talk about the why. How do you think about this? So Jesus comes, and he starts talking to people who act like more grown-ups, and he's talking to them in a way that's trying to train the heart and the mind. The idea is the ideas are there to understand it. Because you just, you really, like I said last time, you really don't pick up, you've never had algebra, you pick up a calculus book and think you're going to do it. But if you'll study for a few years, you get to the point where I have all the foundational ideas to understand calculus. That's Jesus. He says, now that you have the foundational ideas, now that you have some understanding of holiness and behavior, now I want to talk to you about what we've always wanted to talk about. And that, if you, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, read it like that. Read it in the way that, ah, he is engaging my heart and my mind, not just my behavior per se. So that's what Jesus comes to do, and that's why things sound so different. He also, then, how's he going to influence the world? Is he just going to come and write a few books and make a couple of appearances on Dr. Phil and Oprah and then feel like, hey, I've influenced the world, you guys take it from here? He really doesn't. God's not through with history. He's done the the most important thing in history, but how's he going to influence the world? Well, he did it originally through Israel in a geopolitical sense. He was working with these empires, and he did it with a nation, a nation that he did some really special things with. Jesus doesn't. He says, we're not going to be nationalistic anymore. Instead, we're going to create this new entity called the gathering, the ecclesia, the church is how we translate that word most of the time. And I, I'd almost like to use something else because I don't want you to think of the church as an institution. Because what Jesus is doing is he's beginning a movement, an association, as opposed to any political entity. In other words, from then on, God is going to influence history, not through political entities, but through this cross-border affiliation of people. That's why there's so much adoption language and brother and sister and family language in the New Testament. The church is thought of as variously as a bride. You are the body of Christ. You are adopted as children into God's family. All that language is not geopolitical. If you go into the Old Testament and Israel, you see very nationalistic, political kind of language. Does that make sense? Jesus is going to do something really different. And here's what the church looks like. You don't see this in Israel. Acts chapter 4. Uh, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything. With great power, the apostles testified to the resurrection of Jesus, and much grace was on everybody. There were no needy people. Sometimes people would sell their land or houses, and they'd distribute it to anybody as they have need. Acts chapter 2, really similar uh, language. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders happened. The believers were all in a community together. You very quickly see this community isn't just Jewish. This community becomes Jew and Gentile, and you realize God's doing something new. 
He's no longer doing something ethnic or something political. He's doing something broader. And so this unique entity that the world's never seen anything like it called the church comes into being. And then it explodes. So in Acts chapter 1, here are the, the apostles. He's, Jesus is risen. He comes and he sees the apostles. And he, they say, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And they're using political language. It's like, are we going to have the nation now? Are we going to go you know, kick some Roman butts and get these guys out of here and we're going to become a big political power again? And Jesus goes, oh, man, you guys just don't get it. He says, not for you to know the times, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. So in other words, we're going to explode out of here, and you guys are going to do it. We're not going to have a country. We're not going to have a nation. And it slowly begins to dawn on them that, oh, we're going to do something really different. And I'd like for you to think of the church that way, because this is nations... I'm not saying that nations aren't useful in the history of the world or even useful now, although there were some that would certainly argue that right now, that nation states have outrun their usefulness historically. But fundamentally, God's going to do something different that's not going to be ethnic or national anymore. Remember we talked about one of the downsides of ethnicity and nationalism is there is an inherent us and them and an inherent hostility and so the history of humanity to this point is a history of wars. And the wars are based around nations and ethnicity. What's God want to do going forward? If you're going to restore all things to good, we're going to get rid of ethnic divisions. He's going to get rid of that hostility. How are we going to do it? He's going to create something, an association that bonds people around something different than ethnicity and culture and what, what country you were born in. That's the unique thing called the church, and that's how God is going to influence history from that point on. Okay? Questions? Because then I want to take a little sideline and talk about the nature of Revelation for a second. Okay. An anthropologist might argue that humanity is evolving its view of God rather than God being the agent of change in humanity. How do you argue against this humanistic view? Yeah, well, no question about that. I mean, if I were a humanist, I'd certainly be looking at the world through the other end of the microscope. I got several problems with that, but I'll give you the real, real short version of it. Um, first of all, we're going to inevitably disagree with that because a humanist is going to start with the assumption that there is no God. Christians don't start with that assumption. We start with the assumption that there may very well be a God, and let's see if there's evidence out there to demonstrate that. Humanist says there is no God. There's nothing beyond what we have here. So first of all, we're not likely to agree because we start from really different places and we don't even have any common ground. My arguments against humanity evolving its view of God assumes something that you cannot... It is a, it's a completely unfounded assumption. If you are a naturalist, Darwinist, etc., your view of humanity is it is a random, mutative process. There is nothing inherent in Darwinism. There is no compelling reason to believe that anything evolves to higher levels. That's a very commonly held belief system. 
that humanity is evolving towards some higher creation, something more civilized, right? It's a hope that we who raise teenagers hold on to dearly, that they will at some point become more civilized and pick up their clothes and you know, close their mouth when they're chewing. But seriously, that's a belief that has zero basis, zero basis in science whatsoever. So if you understand man as the animal, there's no compelling reason to believe that humanity is indeed evolving upward and refining its ideas about God. I have a major problem with that. That is a huge belief system that is not warranted by science, and it's not even slightly warranted. The idea that humanity is going in a direction implies purpose. There is no purpose in the Darwinian process. As Soon as you start talking about purpose, I'm going to put a name on it, and I'm going to call it God, because we now have something in common to talk about. Does that make sense? So that's kind of my short version. I'm pretty passionate about that because I hate bad science, but I really think the idea of thinking that humanity's evolving is wishful thinking. I just don't think that that can be demonstrated. Okay, with all the preparation that God did for his people, why was Jesus so radically misunderstood? Is it a surprise that the Jews were looking for a geopolitical leader? Yeah, Jesus coming into the milieu in which he comes, I don't blame the Jews for missing this. I know they get a bad rap for being really dense, but I really don't have major heartburn with that because if you stop and think about it, they've been trained in this system of, it's like your kids, when all of a sudden you give them a little freedom, they just kind of go crazy. It's like, well, we don't have the rules anymore. You know, they just, it's hard to make that transition, and that's what I see the Jews doing, is they're coming out of one system to another system. And Jesus comes speaking to them like adults, and they're used to being spoken to by the law of Moses. Again, this is my metaphor in that way, and it takes a while. In fact, Jesus says a lot of things. He understands this. Jesus says a lot of what I call time delay sayings that he knows they are not going to understand this until later. You see it all the time in the scriptures. He says stuff, and they're just totally floored, and then later they go, oh, that's what he was talking about. That's why the apostles who are with him for three years and they hear him saying this, it's still going over their heads. They're not that stupid. They're really having a hard time getting their heads around it. Gospel of John, by the way, is really good at this. As you read through the Gospel of John, he starts explaining stuff. He goes, when Jesus said this, and that's because later they would understand that, he begins to editorialize a little and tell you, we didn't understand it then, but isn't, doesn't this all make sense now? So I don't really fault them for that. I think they're kind of coming out of the system that they were born into. Well, let's talk about Revelation for just a second, because I just want to take this opportunity to tell you why the New Testament reads really differently than the Old Testament. That Old Testament God looks different than the New Testament God? Let me trust you. You as a toddler parent look a whole lot different than you as a parent of your 22-year-old, right? Have you ever seen your, your kids come through what I call the rebellious phase? So toddlers, they think you're awful, hate you, mommy, daddy, you, know, you won't let me do anything. Teen years, they just kind of go chemically insane. I mean, really, it's that whole puberty thing just messes them all up. But then at some point, my experience with this has been either really late high school or early 20s, they kind of come back to sanity and, uh, you know, probably uh, said best by Samuel Clemens. He said, you know, when I turned 21, it was amazing how much my dad had learned. Remember that? 
And you know, it's the point is, is all of a sudden they look at you and they go, wow, you know, you are, you've really changed. It's like, no, I haven't changed any. We are interacting differently, right? The God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament is the same God, but it looks differently because now that I'm in the age of reason, I go, man, you had a lot of rules back then. He goes, yeah, you needed a lot of rules back then, right? So the gods look a little different. Revelation looks different. The New Testament isn't a rule book. And we keep wanting to regress to our toddler phase and say, just give me the rules. And God says, no, nah, I can't shape your heart and your behavior with a bunch of rules. So the revelation in the New Testament, radically different. I mean, God does say, this is something it's okay to do and this is something it's not. But really more in the context of training us as opposed to, I just got a list of rules, just don't, don't goof up any of these rules. The New Testament is a series of letters to churches by and large. You know, what's up with that? And so you tend to see it's because it's authoritative in a little different way. And so the New Testament as revelation, as inspired documents from God, is inevitably going to read a little different than the Old Testament. The reason I tell you this is so I can tell you one of my pet peeves. Uh, just get this off my chest now. One of my pet peeves is, as an adult in the age of reason, people who are supposed to understand the heart things, we go back to the Old Testament and grab some of those toddler rules and then we bring them back and we say, boom, there you go. It's like, no, you need to let the Old Testament be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say. And so mixing up Old and New Testament can get you some very strange theology. But as you read the New Testament, you're going to read it, you're going to go, you know, this actually feels like God's talking to me like a reasonable individual and he's speaking to my heart. Read the Old Testament and you go, man, this God's really got a, you know, real control issues. I just want you to understand, those revelations are intended to be very different. Does that make sense? Okay. The church in history. The church then, or God then goes on to use the church to influence the culture. It's not a nation anymore. Not saying God doesn't work through nations, God doesn't use nations, but God's tool for influencing the formation and the movement of history now becomes the church. Here is a map of, I like this little map. This is the spread of Christianity. Remember we left the apostles right at the end of Jesus' life and he said, you're gonna go be my witnesses everywhere. The Roman Empire's still in place and they're like, witnesses, I don't know what you're talking about, but we got our own gods and we're not really interested in yours. And you'll hear a little more about that on Sunday because we're gonna talk about a really interesting story about Jesus, uh, kind of a timeless truth out of his life. But for now, I just want you to see how Christianity spreads through the Roman Empire. This couldn't happen without the Greek of the New Testament, the common language. It couldn't happen without the Roman roads. As bad and oppressive as Rome is, at least it's got government. It keeps civil order. And so you can travel. And in that 200-year period, it is amazing how, and a nation couldn't do this, but a, an affiliated group of people called a church, in other words, of like-minded believers, spread out, and look what happens. I mean, it, it just spreads through the Roman Empire in the first 200 years. Spreads through so much that the Romans kind of figure out, hey, this thing is a major threat to us because these people do not believe in the gods that we believe in. They will not accept our civic gods. And by the way, that's something interesting that's happened. Remember I told you that the gods used to be gods of nature in the age, what I call the age of immaturity. Most of the gods were affiliated with a natural force. By the time of the Romans, they're not. 
they're really crazy, super people who are acting out some bizarre uh, daytime drama. I mean, you read it and it's just like, whoa, this is convoluted. But effectively, the gods become the civic guardians of civilization. Romans sacrificed to gods less because they actually believed in them, but more because they thought there was some kind of contract with the cosmic powers. We keep your temple up, we sacrifice, we give you honor, and you make sure there aren't too many earthquakes and floods. I mean, that's really how they think about it at that time. Well, Christians won't do it, so they start to get mad at the Christians. So what do the Christians do? If this were a nation, we'd have a war. But we don't have a war, and I want to show you something really different. Think about what Israel would have done in this time. Call up the militia, get the swords out, because God's influencing the world through a political entity. That's not true anymore. Let me read you something from one of the early church historians. His name is Eusebius. Eusebius lived from uh, about 260 A.D. to 330, 340 A.D. So he's right after Christianity spread like this, the Romans have decided, whoa, I don't think we like this idea. So they start persecuting the Christians. They're not attacking a country. They're not actually oppressing an ethnicity. It's just anybody that's got this idea, we gotta do something about it. And you see, you know how hard that is? You can't find these people. It's like finding terrorists, right? It, you can't find them. They're, they're just living amongst you. They just have this very subversive ideas. But they try to identify them, they try to kill them. And here's how the church handles it. This is really interesting. Eusebius, living during a lot of persecution in about 303 AD, it got really bad. I'm not going to read you the gory parts, but they're talking about what happens to Christians in that time. He says this, I was in these places and saw many of the executions for myself. I'm telling you all the ways Christians were arrested and executed, etc said, some of the victims suffered death by beheading, others punishment by fire. But listen to this. So many were killed on a single day that the axes got blunted and worn out and were broken, and the exhausted executioners had to be periodically relieved of duty because they were tired. All the time I observed, though, a most wonderful eagerness and a truly divine power and enthusiasm in those who had put their trust in the Christ of God. No sooner had the first batch been sentenced than other people would jump out from the crowd onto the platform in front of the judge and say, I'm a Christian too. Is that bizarre or what? This is the story of how the church begins influencing the world radically different than anything anybody's ever seen. He goes on, just I mean, this is just full of, of names and who did what and who was killed and what they did and their testimony. He said they died usually singing songs, probably a praise song, I'm, I'm not sure, but you know, some kind of song of praise to God, and that's how they're dying. He says, the world's never seen anything like it. In fact, even the people who disliked the Christians said, enough, oh my goodness, enough. You know, we just gotta quit killing these people. And so by 313 AD, so in other words, you see Christianity expanding without any Christians ever firing a shot, the Roman Empire becomes a Christian empire. And I, the reason I tell you that is look how God did that. There's not a country around that could have conquered the Roman Empire at that time. 
In other words, if God had said, I'm going to supercharge Israel, I'm going to put all the Christians in Israel, and they're going to have a really good army, you could not have defeated it. But the church did defeat the Roman Empire. In other words, it becomes converted. Do you see how really radically significant that is? That's God working in history in a really new and different way, is the idea of the church. Okay? Questions about that? That's a profound idea, and it's a huge change in how God's going to influence history. Yes? In comparing the New and Old Testament, um, you alluded to not mixing the two because you end up with weird theology. But what about the use of hermeneutics to make them work together? Do you not recommend using hermeneutics? The interpretive mechanism of, and there are various ways to look at this, but Christians, unlike, here's probably the big difference in Jews and Christians. First of all, Jews don't recognize the New Testament, so that's one big difference. But fundamentally, Jews understand the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, in the context of an Israel-centric point of view. I don't necessarily disagree with that, but for different reasons. I interpret it in an Israel-centric view because I think God is using Israel for his larger plans. In other words, I don't think it's all about Israel. I think Israel is how God is influencing the world. So Christians tend to look at the Old Testament in a hermeneutic that uses the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. And I think that's a healthy way to look at it. I think it's healthy to read both. I just think it's healthy to understand the Old Testament is God dealing with humanity in this phase, and then God is dealing with humanity in the New Testament in a different phase. So, yeah, I, I think it's, they're both quite useful. You just got to let it be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say. As adults, we do a lot of things because that's how we were raised. It's what we're used to. If God raises us as humanity, then why does that become obsolete? Wouldn't we continue to do things in the way that God has inclined us? Yeah, I think, if, in fact, if I understand the question right, I make this point. One of the things that the way I teach us to think about the New Testament, because I think this is the way the New Testament represents itself, is here's a good way to think about it. I remember, and by the way, if you're raising your kids to this phase, I want to highly recommend it. Laura was brilliant in answering our kids' questions. When the kids would come and say, okay, my friends are allowed to play gory first-person shooter games on video games, but we're not. Why are you such mean and awful parents? And I would say, ask your mother. <laughs> and so they would, and she had this great answer. Instead of saying, that's because your friends are idiots and their parents aren't very good parents, I don't recommend that. That could be hard on your friendships, okay? And I'm joking, but seriously, what she would say was, this is how we do it in our family. In other words, that's how they do things in their family, but this is how we do it in our family. No, we don't take you to see R-rated movies when you're 12. You know, we don't do these things, and are there families that do? Yes, there are, but this is how we do things in our family. That's what God is saying in all that family language in the New Testament is that now that you are, because we are adopted into God's family, we are not born into God's family. 
There's adoption language all over the New Testament, not like you were born a Christian language. It's like now that you have believed and you are adopted into the family, let's start talking about how we do things in our family. That's a very useful way to think about it. So yes, I do think uh, you raise your kids in that way. You say, we're in the family of God and let me teach you how we do things. Very healthy way, I think, to raise kids. Laura's scowling like, no, that's not what I told them. Okay, I probably didn't do a good job of asking the question. I think the question is wanting to know, if God raised us a certain way, why is that now obsolete? Why are we changing the way we're doing things? Well, I mean, and again, I may be misunderstanding. If so, we'll just move on. When we were toddlers, he dealt with us like toddlers. When we're teenagers, he's dealing with us like teenagers. And next week, you're going to see, how does he deal with us when we're adults? when we're out of the home and we decided we're going to do it our way. And you see God working in very interesting ways in history today. But I think God changes the way he deals with us because he's, we're in different phases. That's why I think Old Testament, New Testament, they look really different. Same purpose, going the same place, but we now are conditioned to understand this better. So I think he just parents us differently like, and again, this is an analogy, but he parents us differently like hopefully we parent our kids differently in different stages. Well, it's interesting to see what happens to the church because this is going to set us up for our next lesson because things kind of go awry a little bit. You begin to see what I call regressive behavior happening. So you begin to see the, the structure start to come. Catholicism comes in in this period. And all I mean by that is not, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but you tend to see a structure. And over time, the Catholic church becomes like a nation state in the sense that it begins to wield economic and political power, and you begin to see the church regressing into, in various forms, into these organizations, because I desperately do not want you to think of the church as an organization. There's no organization that overcame the Roman Empire. That's a God doing what he wants to do through the assembly of his people. But we begin to see organization happening. You see the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD. Uh, Constantine had moved from Italy in about 320. He'd moved the capital east over to, that is not labeled Constantinople on this map, and he actually didn't uh, move there right away. But that's basically where Byzantium, Constantinople is. And so he moves to the east. And the Western Roman Empire, think all of Italy in that area, falls politically and militarily, and only the eastern portion remains. And it's like a huge iron curtain goes up in between the two. I mean, there's no communication, no trade, no nothing. They're ruled. On the west, it's chaos. And on the east, there's still order. You have the Eastern Roman Empire. And so things begin to develop in really strange ways. You begin to see the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they start to go like this because there's no communication between them. See what I'm saying? They, as you think about it as a political entity, you begin to not be able to communicate very well. As long as they would stay true to the church's mission, it doesn't matter, does it? Think back in the apostles. How do you suppose that when Thomas takes off for India with the gospel and Paul takes off to who knows where he's going with the gospel, you know, anybody that'll sit still long enough to listen to him, right, and the different apostles are going where, would, do we think they were texting like, hey, here's what I've been teaching, what have you been teaching, you know, and here's what we're doing and we got a church over here and you need to send more Bibles over here for this church. They're not communicating at all and they don't need to communicate. 
They all have, they all are distinct elements with a distinct mission. They all know what the Great Commission is and they're all gonna go do it. As the church begins to get organized, it begins to fragment along political lines. And so the Eastern Orthodox Church and Catholicism, etc., come into play and it begins to uh, have some of the same struggles. Now we're fast forwarding from the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 to the Byzantine Empire in 1095. This is about when the Crusades start. So a couple big things have happened. Muhammad got born in 570 AD. He born much, much after the time of Christ. Uh, about 40 years later, has this epiphany and begins and founds Islam. And man, they come pouring out of Arabia. He unites the tribes of Arabia, huge nationalist movement. Islam is a religion. Islam at that time is also very nationalistic. And I would argue it still is very nationalistic in, it, in its uh, sense. And so you see this huge purple areas conquest. Those are the areas that are conquered and ruled by Muslim rulers, the different dynasties. The area in green is what's left of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. And so you get Christianity, and you can now no longer tell the church and the countries apart. And that's a problem, because now all of a sudden we're back into a geopolitical thing. And so this is the era of, it's one of the low points in Christianity in my mind for the next few hundred years. You get the Crusades from 1096 to the 1200s. You have eight Crusades. It's just not pretty at all. I mean, the intent was good at the beginning, but you tend to now equate your Christianity with your military power and your Christianity with your country. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with a country being a Christian country, but that's not how God's going to influence history. He's influencing history through the church. And so you go through these periods of the Middle Ages and you begin to see a lot of conflict in the church. The Eastern Orthodox Church in 1054 kind of has a huge schism, huge schism with the Roman church. Even the Roman church has different sets of popes at different times, the Roman Catholic church. So you see the church institutionally fighting. You see the church and the countries united together to go fight against other countries, this Muslim empire, and you start to all of a sudden look like you're back into a very geopolitical game. And it's not a time that the church is really terribly uh, fruitful and prosperous, and they call it the Dark Ages for a reason. And I think in the history of Christianity, it is a dark time because I think that Christians have sort of reverted, if you will, back to a more geopolitical view of their faith. Question? A couple of things when we wrap up. Are you there? Yeah. Okay. Um, could we pray for Heath as we close? Yes, we can do that. And. We have yes. These. Okay. Two paid political announcements. Actually, one really important announcement. Here as we close. Well, let me just say this and wrap up, and then we're going to say a prayer for a young man that many of you probably are praying for. But at this point in time, what you've seen is God come on the scene with the church. That's us. Historically, you see it really go astray in this area. You see the effectiveness of the church become no more effective than how militarily powerful the country is and you see it kind of get, lose its way a little bit. You're about to move into the Enlightenment and the Renaissance that directly affects how we live today, and it comes out of a huge disillusionment with Christianity and how Christianity is trying to impact the world. 
Today, we find ourselves in the midst of trying to regain God's plan for influencing history because when we tried to do it that way, in a nationalistic sense, it really did go astray. I mean, those dark ages were ages when God's, I don't think God's people were very effective at influencing the culture and moving it toward what God wanted to. So next time we'll finish up with the uh, Enlightenment, the Renaissance, and right into modern day times. And here's an interesting thing to think about. If God's been that active in history, through all of history, he's still active now. So what's he doing? And is Vladimir Putin have a part in it? Okay. As we close, we're going to do two things. One, Laura has some brochures for those of you who are interested in the Israel trip in November. Uh, she's got some brochures here if you want to take one of those. has everything you'd want to know. The other is, is there's a young man named Heath Albert who uh, many in our church have been praying for. He's an 18-year-old boy who had serious heart problems, uh, been on the transplant list for a while, and just in answer to prayers, I think, or in God's wisdom or his graciousness, a perfect match of a heart has been found. And so he's uh, starting just pretty quickly here. Anytime, he'll start a heart transplant tonight. And so I thought we would pray for two things. One, for Heath, that this would go well, and for his doctors, but also for the family uh, of the young man who died to give this heart. Uh, just grateful gratitude to them for, in the midst of their grief, being willing to reach out and help someone else live. So if so, we'll close with that tonight, and I hope to see you next time, and we'll kind of wrap up the story of history in a real modern sense, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I personally thank you for just how interesting it is to be able to live when we live and look back and see what you have done. And I pray that that lifts our faith. I pray that it increases our knowledge so that as Christians we're intelligent enough to embrace the world and take a, a coherent message of what you're doing in the world, a scientific message of what you're doing in the world. But I also pray that you would increase our faith. And Father, in the little things that you do, just the answer of prayers, the various things that you do for us convince us that you are here. Not because you give us yes, like toddlers, you know, you, you're raising us better than that. You don't tell us yes to everything, but you know you're so gracious to say yes to Heath, and we pray that tonight that surgery would go well. I pray you'd give the doctors energy and knowledge and let them use their skills. And Father, you would just restore him back to health. I know that that will bring great glory to you, but Father, whatever you do, we praise your name and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys.